From cancel culture to COVID-19 shutdowns, comedians and club owners have had to roll with the punches while keeping their punchlines sharp. Hi, I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. Our guest this week knows quite a bit about the comedy industry and its many phases. Al Martin is a New York City stand-up comedian turned comedy club owner. Al currently owns Broadway Comedy Club and Greenwich Village Comedy Club in Manhattan. He joins us to talk about the impact of COVID-19 on the comedy business, as well as to reflect on his over 30-year career making people laugh. Al, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. My pleasure. Glad to be here. So how would you describe the state of New York City's comedy scene in still the midst of a pandemic? Well, certainly better than a year ago, um, but, um, you know, it's, it's a mixed bag right now. You know, on one hand, since we've opened and people have been bursting at the seams to want to go out, we got out of the gate really, really fast. Uh, business was good. Uh, capacities started getting increased. Um, our opening procedures were relaxed a little bit as people were getting vaccinated. And we seem to have been on this kind of arc up. Now in the last couple of weeks, things are thrown into a little bit of a flux again, which is very, very frustrating, you know, from a number of uh, angles. One, people, we're, we've almost reached a point where the people that are going to get vaccinated have gotten vaccinated, and there's a, a hardcore, shall we say, 30% or uh, so of people that do not want to get vaccinated for whatever their reasons are. And, you know, they are a whole spectrum of people. It's not, you know, in, in this society we're in, sometimes we try to pigeonhole a group. Oh, they, they are certain supporters of people or there's, there is, you know, I have found from experience and talking to people that there's a, a whole range of people for various reasons that are not getting the vaccine, but, the truth of the matter is it holds up moving forward. Uh, and I don't think we'll totally be back to normal. Now you combine that with other factors specific to New York, like the perceived crime rate in New York right now, um, that's affecting people from the suburbs uh, of going out. It's also affecting people to go out for our later shows. So. While our earlier shows are doing very well, you know, we used to do a 10, at my Broadway comedy club, we used to do a 10.30 show Sunday through Thursday, and that's gone. There's no business for that. Friday, we can't even uh, scramble up enough business for that. And Saturday's late show is probably down 30%. So just on that stuff alone, were kind of hurting. So if you you combine the mixture of of the perce perception of crime in New York with the the perception of uh, you know safety uh, from a vaccination point, it's it's having a little bit of an impact. That's actually pretty interesting to hear related to the perception of crime. It to me feels like New York City in the '80s with people not wanting to go out after dark. Yeah, yeah, you know. There's a saying in my business now that six o'clock is the new 11 o'clock, you know, or, or nine o'clock is the new 11 o'clock, six o'clock is the new nine o'clock. So, 
you know, we are finding some activity uh, at our 6 p.m. shows, 7 p.m. shows. That seems to be doing better. Now, if you're a businessman and you're, or a businesswoman and you're faced with all of this stuff, all of a sudden you say to yourself, well, why am I doing this? And then you think of the possible upsides of all of this, you know, uh, upside being Broadway is opening soon. And Broadway opening, I believe, will be the catalyst for uh, a lot of the reopenings of the city, you know, and, and back to the cultural and, and, and nightlife capital that we are. And there's a reason then for tourists from out of town to come in, you know, and say, hey, I want to enjoy, I want to enjoy a week in New York. I want to come Christmas week to New York. You know, I want to, I want to come see the Thanksgiving Day Parade, you know, but then on the other side is how fast is this variant going to spread, you know, and it's, it's really a mixed bag and quite a challenge. So are you among the establishments that are requiring proof of vaccination now? Yes. So uh, New York has created a mandate that uh, businesses, including businesses such as mine, are to start enforcing um, a vaccination rule that you show either a vaccine card or something on your phone from one of the apps that will say, hey, I've been vaccinated. I'm good to go. You know, and uh, like everything that New York City does, it's sort of sometimes on the spur of the moment and the, oh, that's a good idea. Let's just implement it. But, you know, nobody notifies the people that are going to have to be enforcing this all of a sudden, you know, or, or give us a little time to, you know, implement this thing. You know, there's a lot of things that have to be done. People have already purchased tickets, not believing they need a vaccination. Am I refunding these people? I guess I am, unless they can show a vaccine card, you know, and the city itself has said, well, we're putting this in, but we're not enforcing it till September 16th. So what does that mean? Does that mean I still have to stop people at the door now and I have to do the enforcing, but you're not going to enforce whether I'm enforcing it or not? Are most businesses going to say, hmm, I've got a party of six that walked up that are not vaccinated or they say they're vaccinated, they don't have their card. The city is not going to enforce this rule anyway for another three weeks. Do I let them in or do I say bye-bye to $200 and tell them to go down the block where they might be you know, uh, a little more lax? So it's, it's really a continued mess of everything going on. As a comedy club owner, can you find any humor in this whatsoever? Or do you try to find any humor in this to keep yourself laughing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole, at the end of the day, the whole thing is, you know, I was just thinking about it earlier today that I feel like I've experienced the death of a sibling, the death of a parent. I've, uh, I've experienced now the Great Recession, Hurricane Sandy, uh, even an earthquake in New York, there was a little one about five, six years or seven years ago, I was sitting in a staple store and the whole building started shaking. There was an earthquake. Uh, so, you know, you survive these things and you survive being closed a year and a half in business. So you just got to try to figure out the way out of it. And, and yeah, you know, I wrote a book during that whole time that we were closed. So there was some humor in that. And you just try to you just try to go with the punches. What was that book about? What's the book about? 
Well, it was basically a book on my over 30 years in the comedy business, and it's uh, titled uh, Did It on a Dare, How I Built a Comedy Empire in 30 Short Years. So did you actually do it on a dare? I, I actually got into the comedy business on a dare 30 years ago. I was dating a girl who was an open mic comedian, and she said to me, oh, come and watch me do comedy at uh, this comedy club I'm going to be at. So I went with her and, you know, she did her set. And afterwards she asked me how, you know, how women are a lot of times. How do I look? How did I do? How was it? And I answered the only safe answer you can give. It was great, <laughs> you know? And then she, she kept asking and asking and asking. Finally, I got fed up. I said, you know what? You are horrible. You know, you, you just were not funny. Quit, go back to teaching. Don't give up that job. Don't give up your day job. And we wound up getting into a 10 minute fight back and forth. And after the 10 minutes, she said, you know what? Your comebacks are pretty funny. Why don't you get on stage next week? And I got on stage on a dare and uh, Andrew Dice Clay walked into the club, 1989, uh, decided to run through his 45 minute set that he was going to do on HBO. So I got bumped and he went up. Then the MC brought me up right after Andrew Dice Clay when 30 people went to go get his autograph. There were two people in the room. One of them was the date that I came with and uh, she was cracking up at watching me bomb on stage. It was the worst bomb. But for some reason, I came back to another open mic the following week, stayed with it and a comedy and a whole career came out of it. You had to follow Andrew Dice Clay. That is hysterical in itself. <laughs> and the MC forgot my name. And in typical Brooklyn style, he goes, uh, our next comic on the stage, I don't even know if he's a comic. He's just been hanging out here. You know, uh, give it up for a really fat guy, Al Martin. You know? and that, was, that was my intro. And I had to work off of that. I was so delusional that in the middle of Dice's set, I knew I was going to go up next. And I said, oh, you know what? I got to change all my material now and be as dirty as possible because I had some kind of crazy delusional thought that on my first time ever on a stage, Andrew Dice Clay was going to like my set and take me on a nationwide tour with him. That's how crazy. So that nowadays when a comic gets nuts with me on how delusional they are and they're going to pack the room, my initial response is to let them have it. And then I think I was that moron 30 years ago. So what had you been doing when you stepped on the comedy stage? What was your other job at that time? I was selling burglar alarm systems. <laughs> that was my exciting life before I got into comedy, you know? And I often think back, I mean, what would my life have been had I not taken that dare from that uh, girl and uh, I'd be selling burglar alarm systems or something similar, I guess. What was your shtick? What was your comedy back then? What were you bringing to the stage? Back then, I, I was doing stuff on dating, like most comics, dating. I was doing it on uh, my weight, uh, my uh, lack of success at losing weight, uh, things of that nature. And you know what? I mean, I could be writing that same material 30 years later. <laughs> How long were you doing stand-up yourself? I did stand-up full-time. You know, I had very simple goals when I got into stand-up. I wanted to see my name up in lights. 
I wanted to do a national, you know, some one or two national TV spots. You know, I didn't, you know, think I was going to be a sitcom star or anything like that. Uh, so I did it full time from about 90, 1990 till about 2002. You know, I stayed with it full time, you know, hardcore. Uh, I got to perform with my lights up on the, on, on the outside. What do you call that? Uh, the marquee. The marquee, yes. At the Riviera Hotel in Vegas, Trump Castle at the time in Atlantic City. I did the Joan Rivers show on national TV, evening at the Improv on national TV. So I uh, um, accomplished those goals. I, I was realized because I had a young kid at an early age that, you know, the kid is, I'm not going to be able to support that kid being a stand-up comic. You know, I don't think I was one of that, one of those guys like Seinfeld or Ray Romano or Kevin James that was going to get that sitcom. So the opportunity came up for me to uh, work at a club and take it over. And eventually uh, that turned into my life, running comedy clubs. And the funny part is it might come full circle because someone had read the book that was very fascinated by it. And he's now written a screenplay for a movie on the book. And you know, we are shopping it around. We are Who would you want to around. play you? Who do you want to play you? You know, uh, if I had a choice, I would love Jonah Hill, somebody like that, you know, uh, a young Al Martin. You know, I think he's fantastic. I love them on The Wolf of Wall Street and, you know, somebody like that. But we shall see. And for a while we were in negotiations and then I I kind of put the kibosh on it. Uh, we were going to have a reality show about my family. But when I saw what happened to a lot of reality stars and how their families got busted up or wound up getting divorced, like like Hulk Hogan and a whole bunch of other people, I said, I don't need that. You know, I, you know, so I said, and when you do a couple of days of shooting with a camera following you around 24 seven a day, you realize how intrusive that is in your life, you know, and uh, I said, I don't think so, you know. It seems to me that you're so grounded and so realistic about your career, what your expectations are for yourself. To what do you attribute that? Because other people would run for that. You know what? Reality show will be on TV, will increase our fame. Even before you said, let me get on TV, let me do stand up, uh, let me get my name on a marquee. Hey, I did that. And that was good for you. But what do you attribute that groundedness to? You know, 100% in the early late 90s early 2000s i met a wonderful woman who was a, a new york city school teacher completely out of the comedy business and uh, i think had i wound up marrying somebody in entertainment i would have gone that same crazy road but you know marrying what i call a civilian someone who's not in the entertainment business you know, she kept me very grounded on day-to-day -day stuff in, in the world, you know, and and that there's a world outside of entertainment and, you know, uh, I better get cracking with it, you know? So I, th I, I really attribute a lot of that to her. She really grounded me in many ways. So what were among the greatest lessons you've learned after you stepped off the stage and into the role of someone running a club? Well, I, I think I brought to that job of run, you know, I'm one of the only people 
I think, in New York, uh, maybe one other person that was actually a stand-up comic and runs a comedy club. So I was very sensitive to a lot of things that comedians go through, you know. Uh, I was very, um, I had a sixth sense, let's say. Uh, one person used to call me a comics coach, you know, that I, you know, run a club. And you got to be tough sometimes when you run a club. You got to have definite ground rules, you know. You got to kind of bark at people like, you know, comics have a funny way sometimes of getting in the way at the wrong time. Like they'll walk up to the bar and say, can I get a Diet Coke in the middle of the first round going out, you know, or comics when, you know, they're hanging around with nonsensical banter the whole night. Then when it's 10 seconds to them going up, they go, do I have time to go to the bathroom? You know, it's funny. I'm doing this in a Gilbert Gottfried voice, but, you know, <laughs> but that's, you know, I, I understand how their mind works. So five or 10 minutes before they have to go up, I go, you got to go to the bathroom, you know, or, or if you need a drink, don't bother them while they're in their first round, you know, stuff like that. How would you say the scene has evolved since you first entered it? How's comedy different today? I think social media has really affected it a great deal. Um, you have people that have been grinding for 25 or 30 years, uh, started in their 20s. They're now in their mid to late 50s. And, you know, they might have done some TV stuff or they might have been in a movie part or two. But that doesn't necessarily make you a, a millionaire unless you own part of the series or it goes into syndication and you had a major role. So you're always kind of hustling and you always have to, you know, bring bring some kind of besides your talent, you should have some kind of ability to draw a crowd, especially outside of New York. You know, New York City is a little different, but when you're playing some club in, you know, uh, Prioria, you know, you, you got to have a little, you got to have a little bit of heat or a little bit of ability to draw. So the, the problem is that you've spent 30 years honing your craft and then some yo-yo goes on TikTok, you know, and is a contortionist, you know, <laughs> and all of a sudden he's got 9 million followers, you know, and then uh, he calls you up and he goes, hey, I'm going to be in New York. I've got 9 million followers. And the guy can fill the room in 12 seconds, you know, and, and this poor other guy who's been doing comedy for 35 years, you know, probably can't bring a person in if he tried. What about the comedy itself? Has it changed at all? Are there topics yes. that people are just afraid to touch? Yes, yes. It's become horrible in that respect. I truly respect the comedian that does not fall for cancel culture, that they are saying what they want to say on stage. I think cancel culture should be banned from any comedy club in the world. I mean, you're going for escapism. There's no subject. You know, I'll give you a perfect example. I was at my club one night watching a show, and I don't know why. I think it was the unusual drink that she had, you know, with all the, the bright colors that was attracting my, my eyes. And I'm watching her, and she is laughing at every comedian on stage. Somebody made a Jewish joke. Somebody made a joke about Black people. Somebody made a joke about uh, midgets. And then all of a sudden, she was silent. I mean, she was laughing. The whole show got silent. All of a sudden, at the end of the show, she comes out to me and she goes, I got to tell you, I love your club, 
but you should never book so-and-so comedian again. That joke he did about autism is disgusting, horrible, and he should be banned from ever doing. I mean, if she could have given this guy the death penalty, she would have. And um, I said to her, with all due respect, I noticed that you were laughing at a lot of comedians during the show that were talking about Jewish people, black people, midgets, you know, crime in New York, whatever. You were laughing at these people, but because the joke touched home, you didn't laugh at them. And, and you thought, as a matter of fact, they were horrible. But I did notice that while you were laughing at the Jewish joke, there were a couple of people that weren't laughing. And maybe to them, it was a serious matter. So you've got to understand when you come in, you know, and when people ask me what kind of material we do when, when I'm answering a phone once in a while or an email, I say, listen, if you're sensitive, don't come in here because there, um, my policy is no holds barred, you know, um, and people are going to laugh. And if you don't like that, and if you're sensitive or if you got a cause, don't come in here uh, because it's, it, you know, we, we let her, you know, I come from Brooklyn. I mean, you know, the crazy, there was a club in Brooklyn called the Crazy Country Club. And what they used to do, could you imagine this nowadays? They used to put a microphone in the bathroom. Huh. In the ladies' room. So you would have two women in the bathroom talking. Oh, eh, Susie, what do you think of your day? Oh, he's wonderful. What do you think of your day? Oh, you know what? I'm just going to have him spend a lot of money on me tonight. <laughs> and really, and then I'm never going to see that idiot again. You know, and then they would come out of the bathroom and the spotlight would be on them. <laughs> you know, that's the kind of thing they were doing back then in the, in the late 80s. So, I mean, you know. You can't do that today. What do you look for in a comedian to grace your stage? Well, simple. I have a simple rule. And that is uh, my club has the showroom in the lower level. We have a hallway and then the bar area. So there are two walls separating myself. If I'm hanging in the bar and there's a comedian getting lots of laughs in the showroom and I can hear him, I can hear that audience laughing through two concrete walls. That's a winner. <laughs> I don't really, you know, I don't look for any specific material. You know, a lot of clubs are in the business of finding the next major TV sitcom star or movie star. But you know what? I thought about that. And a long time ago, I realized someone that will make people laugh on a TV show are not necessarily going to make somebody laugh on a Saturday night that's been working all week, like 40, 50 hours. And, you know, they want to come and enjoy a beer or two and laugh. And, you know, sometimes those people are not that funny. So I've, I'm going for the belly laugh person. I don't care if they're one-liners. I don't care. You know, a lot of circles would call Rodney Dangerfield a hack. Rodney Dangerfield, one of the funniest people alive, but he does one-liners. So maybe he's not talking about his family or his mother or his father. But the guy is funny and he's making me laugh. And, and the guy sitting in the third row is, well, not so good nowadays, but he's spitting his beer out. It's so funny. He can't take it with a belly laugh. So there you go. Who are among the comedians that have risen out of your comedy club into stardom? Well, let's see. We've had, uh, I can remember the time Jim Gaffigan was doing open mics at our venue. Uh, that the One of the writers on the uh, now defunct, 
uh, Conan O'Brien show for many years was uh, Laurie Kilmartin, and Laurie was a regular at our club. Pete Corrielli, uh, who's now on tour across the country and was Jim Brewer's opening act. But we've had so many come by the club through the years. David Spade, Andrew Dice Clay, uh, Sean Wayans, um, uh, Jim Gaffigan, Tracy Morgan, uh, David Tell, uh, so many. I mean, I can remember, I looked at lineups from years ago. Mike Royce, who, who was one of the writers on Everybody Loves Raymond, Tom Hertz, who created many TV shows, uh, all, all brilliant comedians that in their very early years worked my venues. You've been a great supporter of diversity, right? You were one of the first club owners to embrace diversity in the comedy world by establishing the first Latino comedy night at New York Comedy Club. Yes, the first la- we did the first Latino comedy night. We did the first African-American comedy night you know, back then the theory was comedy is comedy. Everybody enjoy one homogenous type of show. And uh, it evolved uh, when I just broke out New York's top African-American comedians and I think 92. And then a few years later said, oh, we did this uh, in the African, uh, African-American market. Let's try it in the Latino. And then I went for the trifecta. I said, let me try uh, the gay market. And what was very funny is we started doing uh, New York's Funniest Gay and Lesbian Comedians. And then about six months into doing the show, somebody said, well, why are we doing a New York's Funniest Gay and Lesbian Comedians at a club owned by a straight person? So they discriminated against me, even though I had the first show. <laughs> and then it turned out my, my kid was was gay, you know. It turned out my my son was gay, who later went on to become transgendered. So the whole, uh, you know. But that's life, you know. Uh, but it came full circle because now my Broadway comedy club was the first comedy club in Manhattan to, uh, I think maybe in the world that actually gave a transgendered comedian a residency and passed them into the rotation at our club, Jay McBride. And we do probably the premier comedy festival in the country for gay and lesbian people called Yes Fest, which will be coming in November at my club. So how many clubs do you have now? Well, currently right now, two. Broadway Comedy Club in Times Square and Greenwich Village Comedy Club in uh, Greenwich Village. <laughs> Does the comedy need to be different based on those locations? Yes, yes. Uh, great, great question. And that is uh, very observant. And yes, and Times Square, we get more of a tourist audience. Although now with the pandemic, a lot of locals are coming in and that's great. I like, I like the, I don't want to totally rely on tourists, but um, you know, obviously being in Times Square, Midtown, you're going to get more tourists and we get more people from North Jersey and, and Westchester. In the village, you get a much, you know, oh, and with that tourists, is a little bit of an older crowd, you know? You'll get your younger people, but you get also a lot of people in their 40s and 50s in the audience, no, no big deal. Now in the village, it's almost always younger people, heavy influx of NYU students and people from Williamsburg, um, you know, uh, Brooklyn, uh, Greenpoint, come over the bridge, one or two stops on the subway, 
and they're there. And, and you know, I've, I've always said we're on McDougal Street. I think McDougal Street's become the new. Uh, it was. I think. I think McDougal Street is the Bourbon Street of New York. You know, if you want to compare it to New Orleans or something, it's just you know a party, a, a whole party atmosphere now. So, how are comedians themselves managing these days? How difficult is it for them in the pandemic? Are some of them even concerned about coming back to the stage themselves? Yeah, I think uh, I think there it's a whole mixed bag of tricks. Uh, you know, when this thing came out, it, it was amazing to me, the mandate from New York, which I, by the way, think is a pretty good idea, not to get too political, probably my only idea I've liked from our mayor, eight years almost, but it's a great idea, I think, because it's going to start to squeeze people to start to think, hey, I'm, uh, I'm not going to be able to go to a, a restaurant, I'm not going to be able to go to uh, a comedy club, a, a jazz lounge, or you know, eventually wherever this gets, you know, spread this policy. So it was amazing to me how many comedians were calling me saying, are, are you involved in this mandate? And I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not really going to enforce. I mean, that's what people were saying. You're not really going to enforce that, are you? I said, are, what, what are you kidding? I'm a licensed business. I have to enforce it. Well, I'm not getting a vaccine. I go, well, try working in any comedy club in New York City. I don't think you're going to find work. And then there are the other comedians that say thank god that this is happening so how can people get some comic relief give us the details about your clubs right now and how people can get some tickets sure we have broadway comedy club located in times square broadwaycomedyclub.com greenwich village comedy club in the heart of the village mcdougall street greenwich village comedy club.com and uh if you want to know about comedy my book did it on a dare how i built a comedy empire in 30 short years and my sequel will be how covid destroyed it in a year <laughs> <laughs> al thank you so much for your time such a pleasure thank you for having me great show and that's it for this week's cityscape i'm george bodarchy my thanks to producer madison colombo our music is courtesy of bensound.com thanks so much for listening